0: Wow. That's all I got, man. That was my whole, my whole thing.
1: Jeff. Jeff, I, I, am, I am impressed. That was... I mean, I fell asleep there towards the end, but that was great. That was, that was really... That was on point. We, we finally found a topic where you, you like, really know something about I spoke
0: it. I've spoken complete sentences. I had something to say. <laughs> this, is, this is like a whole new Jeff. Just cut it there. I won't even have to fix this in post. Like I <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cheap Talk, my name is Jeff Caplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William and Mary, and I'm joined, as always by my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus.
1: Hi, Jeff. how you doing?
0: Doing well? So,
1: Professor Caplow, I, I was thinking today we could talk about something that I know is uh, near and dear to your heart, which is uh, prediction in international
0: politics. Yeah, I like that one. That's a good topic, right. Marcus. OK.
1: Now, I think many scholars of international politics might make the the following claim, which is to say, uh, world politics is incredibly complex. There are lots of things happening in in the world at any given period of time. Human beings are complicated creatures. They have, uh, you know, cognitive biases. They have emotions. They have all kinds of different things that that affect their behaviors. And furthermore, you know, individuals operate oftentimes in, in groups, and so uh, understanding how groups operate can be can be kind of tricky to understand. And so, for a variety of reasons like those, I think a lot of scholars might say something like. You know, prediction is something that would be nice uh, for us to be able to do in terms of an explanatory kind of way. Like I can make predictions about uh, what's going to happen in foreign policy, or I can make predictions about, uh, let's say, the structure of the international system. But but from a, a perspective of of actually sort of doing it and, and thinking about sort of like whether we're right or wrong, just strikes a lot of people as being very, very difficult to do. Uh, and so therefore, maybe not the the pursuit that we should be trying, right? In other words, rather than try to predict what's hap- going to happen in the world, why don't we just spend more of our time trying to understand uh, understanding what has already happened, for example, or uh, trying to understand the sort of current uh, geopolitics as opposed to making predictions about the future? So I, I would just be curious to get a sense of where you kind of uh, land on that debate.
0: Sure. Well, th- thanks, Marcus. I think that prediction is clearly difficult in international relations. I don't think there's any question about that but i mean it's a continuum some things are harder to predict than others if the if the army's massed on the border if like trucks are moving up to the border you know, you might be re- it might be reasonable to make a prediction that an invasion is imminent, right? Whereas like a longer term prediction, 10 years in the future, things like that, those are, are maybe so difficult as to be impossible. It doesn't mean that there's no utility in attempting those kinds of long term predictions. And we can talk about how those kinds of predictions might be used. But it is fair to say that prediction is difficult in international relations. And maybe it's useful to compare it to predictions that we're all making right now about the election. So we can maybe talk about this a little bit in this podcast, but I mean, I'm refreshing 538.com pretty much every five or 10 seconds just to see what's going on. And these are predictions about who's going to win the Electoral College that are just ridiculously easy to make compared to predictions in international relations. Like if you want to predict, is there going to be a conflict in a particular country? That is orders of magnitude more complex than predicting who's going to win the presidential election. Because what are, the, what are these elections predictions based on? They're based on asking people who are likely to vote who they're going to vote for, right? So it's like if, you, if the way you made your prediction about whether there would be war is to like, let's get all the, the individuals involved in making this decision in a room and let's ask them, is there going to be a war? And like, they'll probably tell you the truth, yes or no. And then you would know we can't do that in international relations, right? So the electoral predictions are just so much easier because you just ask people what they're going to do. You aggregate it up. You attach a very simple model to try to, you know, deal with some of the uncertainties that come from sampling and uh, maybe getting the wrong sample in your poll. But it's, it's just way, way simpler than making predictions in international affairs. But I, I think uh, prediction is is still a worthwhile pursuit in international relations. I think there are a couple of ways to understand prediction in international affairs and, and how we can use them appropriately. An issue that comes up sometimes in prediction is that maybe there's a little bit of a tension between the traditional kind of academic approach of positing a theory, uh, identifying testable hypotheses, and then empirically testing those hypotheses maybe there's a tension between that academic approach and a produ- an approach that seeks to predict the future. Um, and maybe maybe those things are in tension, but I, I think that they're actually complementary approaches and that we can think of prediction as one way of understanding the substantive significance of our empirical findings. So if you imagine like a traditional political science paper that, all of our students have had to read, um, that puts out some theory, identifies some hypothesis, and goes out and tests it either with case studies or maybe some basic statistical analysis. And then we find some support for the hypothesis usually, because if we've assigned assigned the paper, it means that they found some support for their hypothesis. So we have some support for the hypothesis, but we don't really necessarily know whether that theory matters much in the world Based on that support we found for the hypothesis, is particularly an issue in, in statistical approaches where things that are statistically significant may be so minor in the strength of their effect that they don't matter much really when you get right down to it in the world. And so analysts often will try to show the substantive significance of their findings, and they usually do this through other statistical methods. But one way to do it is to say, okay, what if we had this theory in mind and we were trying to make a prediction about the future, How much better would it make our predictions to understand this theory, to pay attention to this theory? And this is something that I've done in some of my own work. So I have some work on what leads to negotiation in civil wars. And one of the ways I kind of test the importance of this theory in the real world is I say, okay, let's say we take into account the factors that I think matter for negotiation. How much better would our predictions of whether these countries would engage in negotiation? How much better are those predictions? And it turns out they're a lot better once you take this thing into account. Um, And so this is a way to kind of unify prediction and the kind of traditional theory testing that we see in academic work. But I think prediction is also useful in bridging the gap between academic work and policy work. And I kind of hesitate to use the phrase bridging the gap and to talk about this because I don't really think there is much of a gap between academic and policy work. But one thing that's sometimes useful for academics to think about is, well, how can I make my work more accessible to policymakers who might want to use the insights that I'm, I'm getting from my academic studies? And so one thing that I like to do is I like to take my findings and recast them in in this kind of predictive mode, because this is something that policymakers understand really well, because they're constantly being asked to make mini predictions about what's going to happen in the world. And so if I can say to them, well, if you consider this factor, then your predictions are going to get this much better. Well, then that's a real powerful way of showing them why this is important. And maybe it's more intuitive and easier to understand for folks without uh, statistical training than saying, okay, the p value on this finding is whatever, right? Making this a little more accessible to folks who are doing prediction for a living. I think prediction has also has an important role, kind of moving beyond the academic space in supporting policy and informing policy. And it's clear that folks in government in policy are are often asked to make predictions. That's part of their job. Uh, This is particularly true, for example, in the intelligence world, where really what intelligence analysts are supposed to be doing is saying, okay, here's what the world looks like. What does it mean for whatever this country is gonna do next? And so that's a real integral part of what policymaking and intelligence is about. And when you take the kind of more sophisticated tools of prediction that we use maybe more in academia or in like the data science space where we're using kind of machine learning to make more accurate predictions. One, one way I like to think of this is as a way to help surface important cases for policymakers. In some work I'm doing for the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which looks at kind of nuclear threats all over the world, um, I am trying to develop with the help of uh, Nucleab students, a predictive model of proliferation. And what I want to be able to say is based on this machine learning um, work that we're doing, this big data approach, here are the most risky countries for proliferating under this constrained set of circumstances that I can play with. What I'm thinking about as a useful um, outcome for this work is to be able to say to folks, In the intelligence community, not that like this is a replacement for your expert knowledge of what's going on in the region, right? That would be ridiculous. But what I want to say is, okay, here are the factors that are making this country come up as high risk in my model maybe you can take a second look at this, right? Because these factors have flagged this particular circumstance as something we need to worry about. And so we can think of it as kind of an adjunct to good policy, an adjunct to good intelligence work using these kind of more data-based approaches to prediction to inform policy, not to replace substantive expertise because we don't wanna do that, right? We wanna make it an addition to substantive expertise. So I think, you know, that's how I see prediction we also kind of talked a little bit about this this tension between short-term prediction and long-term prediction, not necessarily a tension, but um, I think predicting in the short term is possible and a useful thing to be doing. Prediction in the long term is a little bit different because the goal of prediction in the long term, I think, is not necessarily to get it right. It's more to help you design policies that can be resilient, that can withstand changes in the world that you might not have anticipated. And so um, in my class, my students have used a tool called scenario planning, which is this idea of kind of making up some stories about what the future might look like, but in a structured way, right? So it it kind of keeps you grounded a little bit, but you have this common set of assumptions and you make up some stories about what the future would look like. And then what you can do is you can adjust your policies so that even if you end up in this other really weird future, your policy is still going to work, uh, versus a policy that's made without any kind of conception of what the future might look like. So predi- its prediction in the long term is less about the actual prediction and more about the process of coming up with the prediction. It makes you kind of think about what are the things in the world that might change that might really have a dramatic effect. And that's an important process that analysts should be going through as they think about um, what's going to happen next in their area of expertise.
1: Let me let me just ask you a couple of questions, because I, I think what you said, uh, I actually agree with a lot more than I thought I would. But,
0: you know, so wait, are you are you anti prediction? What does this mean that you agree with more than you thought you would? Well, I mean, I guess the, the
1: perspective I'm I'm coming from is that it's it's twofold. Right. The first one is that because international politics is very complicated for the reasons we discussed. It seems to me that we still have basic disagreements about understanding things that have happened in the past, right? So if I go and ask a bunch of IR scholars, you know, why did the Cold War end? What 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 explains World War I? Why did the September 11th attacks happen? I would imagine that I would get a whole range of different sort of explanations uh, and sort of causal mechanisms and, you know, variables that some people think are important and other people, you know, don't think is important. And so for that reason, it's, it just strikes me that if we if we think about going to the past as being about sort of retrodiction, right, in other words, we're basically making predictions in a in a sort of uh, way that we already know the outcome, but we can still go through the basic exercises of saying, you know, if I if I take these sort of inputs, what would I expect the output to be? Or what do I expect? uh, to happen in these given situations, it strikes me that you get just like a, a lot of disagreement about. It. And and for that reason, I just, I'm a little skeptical that, that we can make, uh, predictions about something of an, of an unknown future when we can't even really agree about why something that's already happened happened. Right. So that's, I think that's one reason why I'm a little skeptical of the, the entire, uh, endeavor. The other reason I'm, I, I'm skeptical, I think a little bit is, is just as somebody who studies psychology, you know, I've done a little bit of research in, in you know, somebody, you know, you, you are obviously familiar with Phil Tetlock uh, and his work about sort of experts making predictions. And it turns out that, you know, for the most part, they're comically bad at, at doing this. Right. And so I, one of the questions I want to ask you in a second is, is sort of what makes some people better than others at making predictions. But it just strikes me that, you know, even people who have Ph.D.s in, in political science or international relations, uh, experts in the field you know, just are, are really bad at, at making predictions. And these, these are the people that should be the best at making predictions. They have the most knowledge and they, and they sort of study this for a living. And if they can't make predictions uh, at, a, at a sort of reasonable rate, like above chance, I mean, then, then you know, really what's what's, what's the hope for, for the rest of us? So I'm a little skeptical that the, the, the human brain has the ability to sort of deal with this basic fundamental issue, which is that the future is uncertain. Uh, and we, we just have a very poor capacity to sort of, project what's going to happen uh, in the future. But anyway, so it might be worth saying a couple things about Tetlock's work and, and what you think might uh, explain why some people are better at making predictions than others.
0: Yeah, so I, I uh, those are great points. So I'm kind of the first thing you said there about, well, we can't even explain the past. How can we predict the future? I think there's some freedom in prediction. Prediction frees you, Marcus, from the burden of explanation. So it is not required for me to make a, a prediction about the future that I know exactly why something occurred in the past. This this is maybe blowing your mind right now, I know.
1: I, my mind is blown. I can
0: see it on your face, right? So like, let's say I don't exa- know exactly why World War One happened, because I don't, okay? In fact, I'm, I'm hazy on who was involved at all, okay? It's, I'm not really, that's a historian's job, right? So let's say I'm hazy on the, the drivers of World War I. So you might think this might harm my ability to predict conflicts that are like this.
1: I might think that.
0: And there is some extent to which that's true, but, but if you think about the way we do prediction when we use kind of the tools of big data to do prediction, part of what we're looking at are indicators that are not necessarily causal. Think about predicting credit card fraud. If you are the bank and you are trying to predict credit card fraud, doesn't matter so much uh, why the fraud is occurring, right? There may be several reasons that credit card fraud happens. People lost their cards in some cases. People are running some kind of like scheme of signing up for fake cards in other cases. There are, there are a lot of potential reasons for, for, for credit card fraud, but it really doesn't matter from the perspective of the bank why. What the bank wants to do is be able to predict which of these transactions are fraudulent, right? And so they can look at the indicators that are associated with the individual transactions on a huge scale and say, okay, small dollar amounts at gas stations followed by high dollar amounts elsewhere are are a pattern that's indicative of fraud. But, like, you don't need a perfect theory of fraud in order to make that kind of prediction. You can say, here, I have the indicators, I've seen the indicators, and I can extrapolate from those that there is fraudulent behavior going on. And you can do the same thing for war, troop movements, particular domestic situations, the presence of particular opposition groups. All of these things are potential indicators of conflict. And we have some very advanced models out there on political instability and genocide that try to predict those kinds of events based on less on a theory of genocide and less on a theory of political instability and more on a kind of big data approach to it, where we have a lot of information coming in about what's going on in the world. And we can use that data to kind of see indicators of this thing coming, even if we're not prepared to say whether this is this kind of genocide or this theory of genocide is right in this case, and this theory of genocide is right in this other case. So I I think that there is a sense in which Prediction frees you from this burden of explanation and allows you to really focus on, well, what would we look for? What would we expect to see if this event were going to happen? Not so much what caused it to happen. So I think that's, that's one, one potential issue. You also uh, brought up the idea of experts and them being bad predictors. And this is, like, really cool work. So if you're, if you're interested in this stuff at all, Phil Tetlock's work is, is fascinating and it's had a big impact People kind of have, I think, internalized this idea that experts actually don't make good predictions. And that's one of the drivers of phenomena like 538.com and Nate Silver saying, look, stop listening to all these pundits. Let's start looking at what the numbers are actually telling us. And this this whole data-driven journalism kind of phenomenon stems from this, this kind of early work that Tedlock did. But Tedlock has more recent work. And he has a great book called Super Forecasters. It talks about, okay, well, experts aren't good predictors, but does that mean that we can't predict? No, not at all. And in fact, in studies of this, we have found we can predict, and there are people who can make uh, more accurate forecasts. And so then the question is, what are the characteristics of these people and the groups that we put them in that allow them to be more effective at making forecasts? And it's not that they're subject matter experts. And I think this goes to the idea of, you know, maybe explanation is not tremendously important here, but kind of understanding what's happening and, and understanding the indicators that are that are out there becomes very important. And so when you look at a super forecasting idea. Um, You know, you can see things like, well, good group dynamics facilitate good prediction. Um, So that's kind of separate from your level of expertise. Being willing to kind of revisit your predictions and not being wedded to your previous predictions make you a better forecaster. And some of these lessons have been internalized, in fact, in the U.S. intelligence community, where there's a lot of focus on this idea of good tradecraft That is, it's not so much, are you a subject matter expert on Indonesian politics? It goes without saying that you're going to be a subject matter expert if that's something that you're working on, right? But what you really need to focus on is the process by which you make predictions. And there's a lot that we can do in the process to deal with our cognitive biases that come up whenever we think about the future and uncertainty. Um, And there's a lot that we can do in the process to make our forecasts more accurate. And I think that speaks to the efficacy of prediction right that there is stuff we can do to actually make forecasting more accurate
1: one of the things we talked about is is big data you know when i log into netflix i am given a a list of what netflix thinks i'm gonna i'm gonna like right and presumably what they're doing is they're using some type of algorithm that uh uses it's sort of like the the correlate of a, a big data approach right it's like it has no theory really about, about Marcus Holmes, right? What it has, though, is my, my viewing history. It knows how long I stay in particular shows. It knows if I, uh, you know, watch throughout the whole f- the series or, or give up. And, and from that, they can try to make predictions about, about my, my viewing behavior and, and what I might like. And I got to tell you, most of the time, I find it to be terribly incorrect. You know, I, I look at what they recommend, and I'm just, I'm, I'm very disappointed. The show's about cooking. And, uh, you know, I don't know.
0: Did you not watch The Great British Baking Show? No,
1: my wife likes it. I've never,
0: I, I have no interest. Oh my God, that show is so good.
1: So good. In the, in the, yeah, I know. But that was, ironically, that's one of the ones that Netflix thought I would like. So Jeff, why is Netflix so wrong about what I like?
0: Okay, so there are a few possibilities here. So it, it is not the case that Netflix has to be right 100% of the time. In fact, you may be uh, the kind of person that doesn't like a lot of shows on Netflix. And it knows that, like, it's really run out of shows that you're going to like. You've watched them all. You do nothing but stream Netflix. And so what it's giving you are, like, the next ones on the list, right? And so it may have an internal probability rating for those shows. that is actually quite low. It's like, a 30% chance that you're going to like Great British Baking Show. But Netflix has its own kind of internal calculus that it needs to worry about. So one thing Netflix wants to do is get you watching shows that it has a large back library of, that will then kind of get you hooked on a particular series in Netflix, right? Um, because Netflix is, wants you to be sticky. It wants you to keep coming back to Netflix. And so Netflix might actually show you a recommendation for a show that is not the highest ranked one, if it's one that it has like a lot of episodes of, if it's one that's trending, right, that, that a lot of other people are watching, because it feels like those also will help kind of bring you in. So Pretty much everybody is getting Great British Baking Show thrown at them on the front page of Netflix right now. And that doesn't have a lot to do with your preferences for baking shows, right? That's about this, the same reason that, like, ABC advertises, like, its big new show when it comes out. It's not so much the algorithm at work there. It's, a mar- it's marketing, right? It's an attempt to get something in front of you. So we, don't, we no longer know what Netflix actual ranking is of the shows that it's showing you now. It used to be different. So I remember back in the day when you could you still can do this, but it's it's much more hidden in the in the uh, user interface. but you used to be able to like, uh, rank everything you'd ever watched. Yeah, that was great. And I would spend like an afternoon going through old movies and saying, "Oh, I like that. I sort of remember that." Yeah, and and, that, and you and you felt good about yourself because you felt like you were helping to train the Netflix algorithm. And it no longer puts that stuff in front of you. It, you. it used to like ask you after each movie, "Did you like it? Did you like it?" Because it was using that to train the algorithm. And now Netflix thinks that it has enough information about people like you and what they actually watched on Netflix that it no longer needs to know about your personal preferences, right? It turned out that there was a point of diminishing marginal returns there. And now that they have enough pseudo-Marcuses in their data set, they don't care anymore that you once watched this one movie and kind of like Back in the day, they used to show you, we think there's a 72% chance you're going to like this movie which was kind of cool. Like you could see under the hood what their internal probabilistic estimate of, of success was. And they don't show you that anymore, partly because some of the, the shows that they're presenting in front of you have a very low likelihood of success. And they don't want to prejudice that by, by telling you about it in advance.
1: So this is, this is actually something that bothers me, uh, which is the way you describe Netflix's uh, algorithm, right? It's, it's really two different things, right? So partially, it's like legitimately, what they think I might enjoy, right? But then part of it is also like the marketing, right? They want it, They want me to 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 watch whatever show is hot, or or watch shows that have they have a backlog or whatever. And and part of this means though that Netflix always wins, right? So like when I when I make the claim that Netflix's prediction uh, is bad, you can say, whoa, 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 no, 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 that was just marketing. Like they they don't actually not predicting you're going to like the show. They just want you to see it, right? In the same way that that back in 2016. You know, the, the, the Nate Silvers of the world and the people who are making projections about who's going to win um, the presidency were making claims like, well, you know, Hillary Clinton has a very good chance of winning. Like all of our models suggest that she, she's likely to win. It doesn't mean that Trump won't win. It's possible. You know, depending on the model that you looked at, maybe it was a 25 percent chance. Maybe it was a one third chance. Everybody kind of ran with the idea that Hillary was going to win and she was the clear favorite. But once it turns out that Trump wins, then the people who have made the predictions can say, well, we told you. We told you that he had a 25 to 33% chance. You didn't listen to that, but we told you. In other words, regardless of the outcome, uh, uh, Nate Silver at all can just say, well, yeah, our model showed that he had a, a chance of winning, and he won, you know? And this, and like Netflix, they can say, well, you know, it turns out that uh, we, we have this prediction that you're going to like this thing, and if you don't like it, well, it turns out we were actually just going to do that for marketing purposes anyway. It really had nothing to do with the prediction. It was, it was uh, Netflix always wins. In the same way that Nate Silver always wins. So my question is, for for situations like an election that happens only once every four years, or in this particular case, it's an election that never will never happen again with those two people involved in that particular time period, or for international politics where these are one-time uh, events that we're often trying to to predict or explain, uh, what what is the way that we judge predictions? Like how do we how do we know whether or not your prediction was, was any good when there's always seems to me an out by the people making the predictions They can say, well, you know. Of course I made that. That was part of the model. How how would you how would you respond to that?
0: So we can't judge Netflix, but they can. So Netflix, when they give you a recommendation, they'll see which ones you click on, and they'll see which ones you actually watch, and they'll see which ones you actually watch the all of, and they will refine their algorithm based on that. So I think Netflix actually does know how well they're doing and can make adjustments. But, you know, sure, they don't want you to know how well they're doing. They do have some vested interest in making their recommendations pretty good because they want you to keep watching, right? So they they want it to be good. But, yeah, evaluating how well Netflix is doing is not – that's not something that we can really have a lot of insight into. Um, On the election, it's a little different, and there's a uh, kind of public interest, I think in understanding how well polls and, and the kind of poll aggregators like 538, how well they do in predicting our, our elections. And it's really tricky. This is partly a philosophical issue. We spend like a week or two on this in my prediction class. But like, what does it mean that Nate says there's a 71% chance that Hillary Clinton is going to win in 2016? What does that even mean, right? Um, so is he right or is he wrong when when Trump wins that election? And I mean, the answer, says Nate is that he was right, that uh, if you run that election 100 times, in 71 of those elections, Hillary Clinton will win. We just got one of the ones where Trump won. And so the kind of parallel universe version of this story is that if you rerun all of these one-off predictions over and over and over again, you'll see that kind of proportion of, of events. Um, Now, that's really tricky in terms of trying to go back and hold people accountable because we obviously can't run that election again perfectly. But what we can do is we can take Nate's predictions. He makes many, many, many predictions over many, many elections, not just the presidential, but all the House races, all the Senate races. We can go back and see how well calibrated, this is the technical term, are Nate's probability estimates. So you can go back and you can see when he says there's a 16% chance of this person winning, every 100 times he says 16% chance, 16 of those should come up. So you can actually do that. You can go back and you can see how well calibrated are the probabilities that these different um, aggregators make. And so that, that's one way to do it. And that's the nice thing about 538, which has kind of been doing this the longest of these of these various websites because they do have a track record. And you go back and see that actually it's pretty well calibrated over time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this one estimate is right. I think uh, today, as we're recording, 538 has Biden at 88 percent. not saying I just refreshed because it's refreshing every five seconds, but uh, that Biden has an 88 percent chance of winning uh, the Electoral College. And so, I mean, you know, it's not to say that that estimate is right, but on average, Nate's estimates tend to kind of bear out about that many times. Other aggregators are doing things a little differently. So like the Economist model, which I really like, doesn't really have that track record. So what they did was they took the model they have for this year and they applied it to the past data. And they said, okay, if we had been using this model in 2016, here's what we would have said. And that's kind of an interesting approach. And there are all sorts of potential problems with this because obviously they know the outcome already. So there's a risk here of uh, what we call in the business overfitting um, of taking the model um, that you have and making it adhere too closely to the past such that it's not flexible enough to deal with changes in the future.
1: I was just going to ask you about your thoughts about the the downsides of of predictions, right? So I think one could say or make a, or make a reasonable claim that, let's say, in 2016, uh, the fact that so many people thought that Hillary was sort of a shoe in for the presidency had really negative uh, effects in terms of maybe voter turnout. If you're a Democrat that woke up that morning and it's raining outside and you're, you know, geez, I got to watch my kids. I don't really want to go to the polls because, uh, you, you know, if you think that Hillary is going to win pretty handily that you don't really have a, a big incentive to, to do that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the sometimes social scientists talk about the performativity of of polling, but not just in, in polls, but also just predictions more generally. What is what is the downside? And, and is that downside risk uh, real? Or is it something that we sort of over overemphasize sometimes?
0: Yeah, great question. So I think there are two issues associated with what I like to call the Nate Silver effect, but which he does not like uh, when people call it that. But this is the idea that 538's prediction that Hillary Clinton was going to win the 2016 election prevented Hillary Clinton from winning the 2016 election because so many people felt it wasn't worth voting because this one's in the bag. And that's a potential issue. So there, I think there are two main issues around it. And one is uh, maybe less important, but it's about evaluating prediction. So, you know, I, I I used to work in the intelligence community and uh, I made predictions for a living. And some of my predictions were, most of them were right, but occasionally I would get it wrong. But if you went back and you were like, Kaplan, go back to all the, the presidential daily briefs or whatever that you wrote and tally up your success rate. How well did you do in predicting what was going to happen with Iran's nuclear program or whatever? Well, I can do that, but I, I can say that my predictions would end up being almost all wrong using that metric. But that doesn't mean that I was wrong in making the prediction. Because if you imagine what a successful prediction looks like for an intelligence analyst, so I write to the president and I say, Mr. President, this is a crisis. You need to do something about this. This is like bad things are about to happen. This is the time to act. And then the president reads my thing and is like, you know what, Kaplow, you're right. This is the time to act. And the President takes some action that solves this problem, or shifts the problem or knocks the can down the road or whatever, right? Um, well, then my prediction would turn out to be wrong. So So I say, Iran's going to have a nuclear weapon next week unless you do something. And the President's like, "Well, we should do something. Let's issue some sanctions. And those sanctions take effect, and now Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon next week. They get it in a year or whatever. So I was off by uh, you know, eleven months and three weeks. Um, In my prediction, but I wasn't wrong at the time. What happened was my prediction actually changed the future in like a weird back to the future way. So you cannot then go back and evaluate predictions like this, when they might have had an effect, uh, an intended effect on what's gonna happen. This is actually a real challenge in understanding how prediction works in international policy where the point of prediction is to stop stuff from happening in the future. So it's very hard to understand the track record of say intelligence organizations in predicting things and just looking at the track record kind of on the face of it doesn't give you a good sense of how well, how good the predictions were in the first place. So that's one issue uh, here. Uh, another issue is this idea that public estimates like 538 are going to impact kind of generally what people do, and you have you can have kind of a, a self negating prophecy. Nate Silver puts out this estimate everyone's like yeah, I don't need to vote and so the thing goes uh, to Trump rather than than Clinton when if the estimate had not been public, Hillary Clinton would have won no problem because people would have been more concerned about who was going to win the election and This is a real issue. I think it is very hard to show this empirically so the 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 limited work that attempts to do this i think is quite weak and i don't really buy the results Um, And so, I mean, we don't really need to get into the specific papers that have done this, but a couple of folks have tried to look at in kind of controlled settings, experimental settings. Okay, if you give someone an estimate, how does this affect their likelihood to vote in the future? And instead of voting, they use this little game where they they earn money to try to simulate voting. But it's not a great simulation of that. And it's really hard to know how much these estimates, uh, how much these kind of public estimates really do affect things but i think there's a there's a concern about it and the concern really revolves around uh, our general lack of facility with probabilities that people just don't understand human beings just don't understand probabilities well enough to use estimates like those coming from five thirty eight to drive their behavior like I don't understand enough about what it means for there to be a seventy one percent chance that Hillary Clinton wins in order to like really internalize that and make voting decisions based on it so the uh, the answer to this question is you should vote, you should not uh, read. Aggregators and say, okay, I don't have to vote. You should vote and not use those aggregators as an excuse not to get out there and, and cast your ballot.
1: I like that. That's a good. That's a good uh, a point. I think you could also make the, the claim that it could work in the other direction too. Is some people probably vote because they want to vote for the winner, right? So it's like, I, if I know Hillary's going to win or if I think Hillary's going to win, I want to go vote for her and be part of that winning team, the, the coalition that wins. Maybe there's something something there too. Sure. If you're interested in this topic, you should look for future classes that Professor Kaplow will, will teach on this uh, very specific topic of prediction.
0: Yeah, for those freshmen out there who have not yet taken your call 100, I have a call 100 next semester called Predicting the Future, um, which will be a lot of fun. We're doing it remote uh, synchronous in the spring, so it should be a good time. Um, if that's something that's of interest to you, I would encourage you to sign up for it. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's been a pleasure as always.
0: And we'll see you next time. So tell me about this oven saga I've been hearing so much about.
1: I I, I did tell some of my students about this. Basically, we uh, moved into this house uh, a few years ago, and the kitchen is extremely old. So this house was built in the 1940s, and I think they did some renovations in the kitchen in, in like the 1980s. And the oven has been uh, installed in the, that kitchen probably for the last 35 years, I'm guessing, and it broke. And so we had to get it fixed. So what we, we did was we called up Home Depot and we asked them, do you install ovens? And they said, yes. And so we had them, uh, we purchased an oven. The guy came out, took measurements, uh, did everything he needed to, to do sort of preemptively because he, he wanted to make sure that we got the right oven and, and things like that. So we put, bought the oven, Took a while to, to, to have it delivered. And then, you know, just a couple days ago, they came to, to install it. And what I didn't quite realize was that replacing a wall oven, uh, I actually briefly thought about trying to do this myself. And I am so glad that I did not in, in try this. First of all, you open up the box to the oven, and there are wires and uh, various things coming out of this thing. It's, it's, it's so complicated. The, the manual to how to install it was, was almost an inch thick. And they they build these things to kind of be sort of universal in terms of like their, the 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 space that they fit into. With what they don't tell you is what that means though is that you have to like construct a frame for the oven to fit into that particular space. So it's not like you just pull the old oven out and then plug something new in. You have to actually build a frame around the oven and then stick that into the new the new the, the old the the new the old spot the new spot where the old oven was in the current spot. So this ended up being like an all day event. So this guy comes over at like nine 30 in the morning and he's, he's looking at it and he's measuring, he takes the drills out. And meanwhile, I didn't want to get coronavirus. So I, I put him in the kitchen where the oven is and I open the windows and I close all the doors. And so all I get is the, the, the horrendous sounds coming out of the room. It's, it was like being at the dentist's office where you hear the drilling and it's like the awful noise, but it was like probably 10 times louder than that and banging. And, and it was sounded like they were tearing down our entire kitchen. Um, At some point, I I went in there just to see how things were going, which was a huge mistake because he was he was like sweating profusely. He was uh, very agitated uh, and and didn't really seem to be that confident in what he was what he was doing. I will say in the end, the oven was installed Uh, after we overcame the initial sort of how do we make this work? Uh, in terms of, like, what are the buttons and all that kind of stuff? And what is, what is the, the LED thing trying to tell me? We now figured out how to work the oven. It works. It, it heats up. It cooks food. So we're very happy. It was just a, a long, a long day of of oven uh, shenanigans on. Day.
0: Yeah, well, and now you can't go in your kitchen for two weeks. So that's well, right. I
1: Lysol. We, we, we have one can of Lysol left uh, uh, in our in our storage shed. And so we were able to Lysol, you know, like crazy. Um, we think we think we're OK. We think we're OK. I still have my sense of smell.
0: If you need some more disinfectant, I know a guy, so let me know.
1: You are very good at the disinfectant. I, I, I feel like appliance installation, um, and you, you had made this point earlier, Jeff, and for the, the students listening, this will be helpful for your futures. I think it's worth having people install appliances for you. I, I just don't think it's worth trying to do yourself. yourself. And, and watching this saga on Monday over the course of probably six hours just reaffirmed for me the importance of having people who know what they're doing install appliances.
0: So I, I maybe disagree. I, I mean, I feel like you got to know what you're getting into. So I did a dishwasher uh, a couple months ago. Right. And, and like, it's not that big a deal. Right. It, it still took me far longer than it probably should have, but I did watch several YouTube videos before doing it, so I felt well prepared for the this, for this situation. The thing about having an appliance professionally installed is it puts you in a really weird position of not knowing exactly who you should be rooting for. Are you rooting for the installer? Or are you rooting for the appliance? Because you want the thing to be difficult enough to install that it justified you spending the extra $100 or whatever, to have the person come and install it for you. If it's too easy, if he just slides that oven in there and plugs it in and bam, it's working, well, that's just embarrassing, right? You should not have gotten that guy to do it. But be, you so you want it to be difficult enough, enough of a trial, there should be enough weird noises, enough uh, sweaty installers that it felt like it was worth the money. But you don't want that to go too far to the point where the guy drops your oven on the floor and shatters it into a million pieces, or you got to call in the oven installation supervisor to come and like double check that everything is being done correctly. And then there's even more COVID in your kitchen and you got to add another two weeks to the process. So I feel like it's a tricky thing and you can, you can kind of short circuit this, you know, who do you root for problem by installing it yourself. If it seems like a reasonable job, I feel like maybe wall ovens are particularly fraught. I would feel comfortable with a dishwasher and maybe even like a oven range combo because there's like a slot for it right like you don't need to you don't need any framing you push the thing in you pull the thing out make sure everything is hooked up correctly but um i don't know
1: i think i'm comfortable installing a refrigerator that's that's basically where where i uh or or small appliances like um like a a toaster a (laughs) a mixer uh you know i can do that uh, I'm, not, I'm not installing any sort of um, thing that needs to go into, into cutouts in, in my house. I will say there was a moment in time where I, I thought really that this was not going to work and we would forever just have this big hole in our, in our <laughs> kitchen and we would have to go buy some standalone uh, range because no one would be able to figure out how to replace. The, the other thing I will say, Professor Caplow, that's important to note. It, it's the case now, I believe, that, that wall ovens are produced in standard sizes. This was not the case back in the in the whenever this house was was sort of uh, the kitchen was sort of redone in the 1970s, early 90s, whatever. And so our cutout for the oven is a non standard sort of custom, if you will, size, which is which is great when you are like building a, a house or renovating a kitchen. It looks nice and everything. But then when that oven breaks, you have a major problem on your hands because now that you don't have a standard size, you can't just like slot something in there. Uh woodworking is involved. Like drills, uh uh wood whatever they use to cut wood, saws, uh, you know, nails, those things become part of the process. And so once that happens, I feel like I'm out. I just can't I just can't.
0: Yeah, I probably would have just scrapped the kitchen at that point and just done a complete reno As long yeah, as you're if, pulling if, the you thing it. You know, out. I'll tell
1: you what, if, the, if we didn't have coronavirus, uh uh we might just do that, you know, but I, I think at this point and that yeah,
0: well, okay. What do you think? Should we talk about talk about some international <laughs> relations? <laughs>